Hi, this is Ryan Fraser. This is Troy Daney. This is Gus Boyet. This is Don Hutchison. This is Jürgen Klopp, and you're listening to The Big Interview with Graham Hunter. Thank you, Jürgen. I travelled to all these interviews from Barcelona, and our socios, our beloved members, keep us on the road. This independent podcast would not happen without them. Please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter right now to become a socio, to become one of our members and get an extra big interview every month, plus loads of bonus content. So, go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Graham Hunter, and we'll bring you joy. Welcome to a very special episode of The Big Interview. This is our 100th guest, centenary as I like to call it. So thank you all for letting us get this far. We really wanted to get somebody special to mark the occasion. Then, during lockdown, I got a call from Rio Ferdinand asking whether I'd help us translator for his interview with James Rodriguez. That was for Rio's own YouTube channel, Rio Ferdinand Presents 5. It was a terrific interview. It's a very good channel. Check it out. There are some good interviews there. In return, this man, who I think is probably the best English central defender ever, agreed to be our centurion. I wanted to focus on Rio's experience of and his obsession with the Champions League, from a youngster in Peckham through Leeds, then Manchester United. Therefore, here's part one of two. On Leeds' run to the Champions League semi-finals, had you forgotten about the chess game Raul offered him when Rio first came across one of Spain's all-time great strikers? And if you ever wondered what it's like for elite footballers to read the same transfer stories as fans, wait until you hear him on the rumours that Ronaldinho was finally coming to Old Trafford. I learned a lot from watching Rio as a footballer. He's terrifically good and he changes your idea about what defending should be about. I think his analysis is lifting our enjoyment of the game on television, and this, thankfully, was one of my favourite interviews for a long time. And there's more soon. Enjoy. Big interview fans, uh, we promised you that the centenary would be special. If only we'd got this gentleman on episode one, six, 66, I, I don't care. It was vital to have what I think many people would consider, Bobby Moore included, as England's most complete central defender. My argument is that he could have played central midfield. And truly, if he'd wanted to, he could have probably played up front. We're in the presence of a multiple Premier League winner and Rio Ferdinand, given what we aim to do on the big interview, it's a pleasure to have you in here, not just because you were successful, uh, not because you're a brilliant football analyst on BT, but because your love affair with football, your continuous curiosity about how to play it, win it, explain it better makes you our ideal guest so good morning and thank you good morning thanks what an intro love that <laughs> every word true every word true Rio you already know because you've been tipped off more than uh, we tip off our guests uh, usually this is about I don't think Rio that you had a, a love affair with the Champions League solely my impression of you is that you had an obsession for marking the best of your abilities, making the best out of your career by winning trophy after trophy after trophy. Everybody I know that knows you well says that you were remorselessly obsessed by trophy, certainly in the last three quarters of your career. And therefore, the Champions League had to fit into that. Today, we haven't got the time to talk about Champions League and Premier League. Tell me if I'm right whether the Champions League was simply the cream of all the trophies you craved or whether I'm wrong and like me, you've got something of an obsession with conquering Europe. The best way to put it is it's like, <clears throat> when I, I, obviously before I joined Manchester United, I'd only won like the Intertoto Cup, so it was basically nothing. Um, and I got to United, uh, and you just get absolutely engrossed in the environment that you're in. And that environment was winning. That environment was geared, everything was geared towards winning. 
Um, and obviously there were people that had won multiple trophies in there, that won league titles, won the Champions League as well. Um, but I had never won the league. So my main, my main focus as soon as I came through that door was I have to win the Premier League. That was my obsession. And I, luckily enough, I won it in my first season. And then from there on, obviously, I was obsessed to win the league every year. But I was even more probably obsessed of trying to win the Champions League because that then put you amongst... So I, when I walked into Man United, I, walking through the corridors of Man United, whenever I saw someone who'd won the Champions League or a legend like we'd always see, one of their directors, I think he's on the directorship now, um, Sir Bobby Charlton, I used to feel so in awe like, and a little bit like, I'm not at your level yet. I may never get to your level, Sir Bobby Charlton, but I, I, I've not done what you've done at this club which is winning the Champions League. And when I go to certain events or things with Nike, there's other players there, huge players, Roberto Carlos, etc. all these other guys. And you think, wow, like Raul, they've all won a Champions League. And you just feel a little bit like, not out of your depth, but I've got, I've got more to get. I've got more to go through to be able to walk around and put my shoulders back a little bit and be able to feel comfortable in these surroundings. Um... And so that just became my absolute obsession was to win a Champions League. Then it's crazy. I spoke to my uh, old agent from years ago, um, Pini Zahavi, um, the other day. And he said to me, do you have any regrets? And it, my, my biggest regret probably is not going abroad. He said, listen, I could, you could have gone to, to Real Madrid. I could have got you to Barca. Um, but I, and then he, he said, why didn't you just go? And I said, listen, once I got to United, I was... I, 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 an addiction, an obsession with winning was just there. So I couldn't leave. I was too addicted to leave. I think both those who've loved Manchester United, hated them maybe, but the neutrals in between who saw how that era played can easily understand that. But you're right, we're going to come back to Real Madrid and Barcelona. But I want to ask you about Rio, the, the Peckham kid, because you were multi-talented, but you always had tremendous athleticism, tremendous skill, you were picked out early as a footballer of, of really natural ability. But you were born in an era where you were too young to watch the last several English teams win the European Cup. You were alive when Villa won it, when Liverpool won it, but you couldn't have been sitting watching on TV age three, four, five. The first English club, as you're growing up, to win the European Cup, the Champions League, is Manchester United in 1999. Now, I guess in between you're watching Juve and Ajax and Milan and all that kind of stuff when you can as a kid. But I'm trying to get that when, when that competition, the razzmatazz, the, mid, the midweek nights, the, the names you only hear now and again, starts to permeate your consciousness. Because by 1999, you're, you're turning 20 or about to turn 20, Manchester United have won the treble. And eventually that must influence you in thinking when Leeds are willing to sell, need to sell, you rescue them with your fee. How much did the Champions League permeate your consciousness growing up? Yeah, I mean, you, you're so Ron Atkinson, his voice on Champions League nights on ITV, like you just, it was unbelievable. I used to love watching it. You'd clear everything, anything you had going on. As long as it, you wasn't training at football, you'd be there to watch it. As much as I wasn't a Man United fan, you was always, there was always our best hope in Europe for many years. And you're thinking, please try and get over the line. They obviously played two open, playing four four two. It was just like amazing to see the the, the, the great teams, the the Italians, the way that they just like they dominated around that time. You've got the great Milan team. I mean, it was just like to see the players that that had done that. And so when growing up and you see those guys, I, I look at the the Champions League now compared to the, the then European Cup. I think the the status of the Champions League is is bigger now um, than what it was then. But it still had it was it had that that energy that excited you probably beyond a lot of other competitions that you watched during the course of a calendar year. So when the opportunity to come, in the old days you could move outside what are currently called transfer windows. So, you know, I've gone back and read your book, Rio, and what really interests me is that although you are patently, I mean, I I remember spotting you, um, I think, uh, was it Terry Venables took you as an underage player at training with the England squad? I was watching them down at Bisham Abbey, who are those two? Rio and Frank Lampard. Oh, okay, tuck that away. I saw you in Casablanca in '98 against who was it? It was against Belgium and Cameroon in the triangular tournament. You got the World Cup, but by 
by 2000 you're self-aware enough to go like David O'Leary there's a brilliant part in your book where you say Peter Reesdale thanks enough about the money which is pretty cool give me David O'Leary tell me what this famous central defender who's now coach of Leeds can teach me and O'Leary gives it to you hot and strong doesn't he about this is what I'm going to do to you this is what I'm going to ask of you explain that conversation and explain why O'Leary was an attractive factor in going to Leeds yeah Leeds was an exciting up and coming club in the the modern day in that time there'd been good amount of investment young hungry players at the time doing well looked like a promising club going somewhere and it was out of London which I needed to be because I was getting caught up in the bright lights of London so I met Ridsdale as you said and he was talking about the finances with my agent at the time and I, was, I kind of just zoned out and I was like listen I said listen with all due respect you guys can sort out the money I don't you, my agent can sort it out with you I want to know what the manager's going to do for me as a player is he going to improve me can I just speak to him please so he got him on the phone and Mr O'Leary just said listen um I said, Russ, what are you going to do? Are you going to, I need to be coached. I need you to drill me every day. I need you to be on me and, and don't allow me to, to slack. Just make sure you, I want to be a better player and can, can just promise, you, promise me you're going to do that. And he said, listen, all that you've asked there, I will do. Me and my coaches won't let you rest on your laurels, won't let you sit and become complacent and all that stuff. And I said, like, just listen, Get me up the motorway. Get me there as soon as possible. I want to start training. And, and they were true to their word. And he, he was like, at the end of the day, he didn't really... I wouldn't sit here and say that he was a fantastic coach by any stretch of the imagination. He was somebody who was really good at communicating with me. He was great with me in that sense. Um, he gave me... There was probably two incidences that I, that really helped shape me around that time to be, help me become on the journey that I, I, I went on. One of them was making me captain really early on in my time there. I think within the first two or three months there, I go in there as a the record-breaking sign-in play about five or six games, I think it was, and then all of a sudden become cap- he announces that I'm captain in front of the team. The way he done it wasn't probably the the most ideal way because it was just right. He hadn't told me, spoken to me. He hadn't told Lucas Radibi. He just pulled us together and said, Rio, I'm going to make you captain. Chief, you've been brilliant, but it's time for Rio to take over. That gave me immense confidence. And I had to then deal as a man-to-man with Lucas Radibi, who's my respect for him was huge. He'd been the captain, South African captain, great player. And just to kind of manage that situation, that embarrassment a little bit of just being startled into this situation. It was good. It was just made me come become a bit more of a man at the time. And then one game we played against Cardiff before the game, I was getting into a bit of a habit of messing around in the change room with the lads, banter, having a laugh, music on, involved in everything. And, he, and I went out into the game. I got injured in the first like minute or two. Um, I rolled my ankle one of the lads tackled me I played the ball down the line he tackled me and I came off and he after the game I think on the Monday he said after the game in the change room he said I'll speak to you on Monday come and see me in my office so I went and see him he said are you going to mess about all your career or are you going to are you going to wise up and, and become serious about it he said you're not like everybody else you're not like everybody a lot of these guys oh, this will be the top of their career this is where they're going to get to you've got bigger and better things to go on and do but you're only going to do that if you're serious and if you're really focused before a game, messing about cutting people's trainers and shoes or socks in a change room before you're going out to play a really important game, do you think that puts you in the best state of mind to play football? Think about it. And that's it. And then that was probably one of the best bits of advice, information that he gave me. From then on, I was much more of a serious, I was much more intent on looking at the detail before games and I just I just I just sharpened up as a as a, as a person as a, as a as a man as a, as as a, a captain within a change room that it wasn't all you could have your smiles and your jokes at certain times but game day especially on the training pitch especially you you serious yourself up and you get ready for battle it's interesting that you weren't chippy because a lot of footballers aged 22 23 who who know they've got talent and I guess that you'd spent 10 years by then knowing that you were very talented and and a, 
aside from being smart at football and having technique, physically gifted too. You could have pushed back there and, and clearly through luck or judgment, his man's man man management was pouring water on dry ground that needed that. You needed that message, but he didn't push back and go, Yeah, what does he know? I know better, which a lot of footballers do. Yeah, they do. And I think a lot of the guys that push back like that are the ones that they know they're guilty, but they're too proud to say it and they don't put winning or becoming better and fulfilling potential at the top of the list of things that they want to do. So they just get that defence mechanism and say, you're attacking me, you're attacking me. When really, if they sat back and was honest with themselves, they'd look back there and go, actually, I was probably being a bit too jokey, a bit too too much having a laugh. I've got a wise up. He's telling me the truth. And just humble yourself and just say... The, the, the overriding factor with me was always... The fact that I was even at Leeds was based on me saying to myself and self-evaluating and saying I need to leave London because I'm not doing things right, I'm not living right. And I've been left out of 2,000, yeah, the 2,000 euros by Kevin Keegan. So I had to have that little bit of time of, of, of self-reflection and looking at myself and thinking, okay. So after that especially, any type of advice that was quite stern and to the point, I, used to, I always thought it was probably coming from the right place. So I took it on board. Just around the corner is going to be your first Champions League semi-final. And it bugs me a little bit in, in assessment of you that people forget that, that you're a central part. You were brought in mid-season after Leeds had coped with Barcelona and Milan in the strange, crazy group system that they had then. You're brought in and you're a significant factor in taking Leeds to with, within one win of the Champions League final. Um, I don't know if your home Champions League debut against Anderlecht sticks with you in any way you win um, it's maybe not the most glamorous tie but I'd imagine that for a combination of right now I'm getting get to measure myself against this tournament and Ellen Road and a night like that I'd imagine that there was more anticipation than nerves yeah definitely and, and, and like you go back to the point you said earlier the music Ron Atkinson's voice the history that I'd grown up watching the Champions League and all of a sudden I'm captaining Leeds in a semi-final one game away from getting to a final now like the magnitude of that game probably still didn't it still wasn't really like I didn't really understand it still even in the time because you we'd just beaten Deportivo as well we just scraped through really we, we, we beat them I think 3-0 at home I scored and we got absolutely destroyed at their place 2-0 it could have been 5 and we went through and I was thinking, wow, Valencia are meant to be a better team than these. But when we played Valencia at home, we, we gained confidence because we thought, wow. And we didn't learn from the lesson of Deportivo that the team that plays away normally isn't the same as the team that plays at home. So obviously that naivety, that, that inexperience played a big part in that semi-final because we went there and we thought we could go over there and play like we did at Ellen Road, attack really get at them and they just absolutely picked us off and destroyed us on the night it was, I think it was 3-0 on the night it could have been 6 or 7 really they were that much better than us I want to go back a step to a Spanish team though because you played Real Madrid at a stage when I think each of you thought you, were, you knew you were going through the group I wondered how much of a learning lesson that was that night because against Deportivo you, you were facing up against Roy Mackay in particular for Valencia, it was Juan Sanchez, who was less heralded, but scored two of those three goals. John Carew, who was a very physical um, battle. N- not a poor footballer, but tough. But against Real Madrid, you were up against genuine royalty. And the royalty punched the ball in the net. And I just wonder, that night in the Bernabeu, where Raul literally reaches up and, and does a Maradona and punches the ball in the net. And I think Figo bombs one in from the right and it bounces off the paint on the penalty box and, and, and bounces in. 3-2 win is nothing to be ashamed about and, and particularly Smith's goal is absolutely gorgeous. But that's a night where, given how much you like to assimilate and think and learn, you must have come away less worried about the 3-2 scoreline and thinking about this is a different kind of football, different kind of attitude. These people play by different rules, or am I wrong? Yeah, I know what you mean, but the Ellen Road game was even more. I thought we, it gave us a bit of confidence. Like we, because of the results we'd had throughout the season against the big boys in, that, in the tournament, it we didn't look at Valencia as being as good as or better those, than those guys. So we wasn't going into the games against Valencia with any type of fear or inferiority complex or anything like that. It was, and they didn't have huge names at the time. They had great players like Mendieta, 
Baraka, um, Ayala at the Ayala. back. Like they had some great Carboni, they had some great players, but they wasn't like superstars. So there wasn't, we wasn't transfixed on anybody who's right. We got to set up just to make sure we stop this guy. It was, it was just because we'd been doing that throughout the tournament against the bigger sides. We didn't do that with these, and it was just. I just felt we probably didn't... We did take it seriously, don't get me wrong. It's the wrong way to put it, but we just wasn't like... They, they, they wasn't the superstars of the Madrid's, Barcelona's, etc. So, like you say, Sanchez comes in to us, an absolute unknown quantity, scores two. And I thought on the night he was so sharp and I thought, wow, I've never even really heard of this guy, but he's a, he's a really good player. So, again, that was another learning curve into... right. I won't ever be going into a game with, without doing my complete due diligence on players. Um, and it was just, it was great. It was a great learning curve for me. Disappointing, yes. I've still got a picture in my house up somewhere. Um, I think it might be above the garage or something like that. I, I got it framed and I had it up in my house in, in Manchester. And it was a really, good, really great picture um, of me hunched down on my, on, my, on my knees like that, hunched down. Um, picture from behind, big stadium, um, and 3 0 um, in Valencia. It was in the, the Yorkshire Evening Post. But I, I, I framed that picture because it just meant it was something that was. To, that's, that's like I put that there and that's something to aim at again. And it, the memories of that defeat and how, how far off we was. And I didn't do all of the due diligence, I didn't know enough about their players. So that had to change. So that was a, it was a really good, a good moment. Bad moment, but a good moment. Well, it's a, I understand you putting a stone in your shoe and, and looking at it and going, that's never happening again. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that memory away. Not many people do that. And listen, I want to get serious now about United and Champions League, but I can't, we can't leave it. That goal that you talked about, your debut goal was a really canny goal because you're, you're not quite back post. You're at the edge of the um, area. You're getting a second header. There's bodies on the line everywhere. It's a beautiful goal. I don't know if it sticks with you, but it's a really canny header. Yeah, it was. It was, a, it was a really good header when I look back at it. But it's, you know what? It's, I'm, I, that's one regret in my career. I didn't score many goals. I didn't score enough goals. Um, and I don't know why that was. I just I didn't work on it. I used to think I'm here to defend and I've got to work on my defensive area. And, I, and when I went up to the other end, do you know what it was going in the other box? It's effort. To score goals, it's big effort. You've got to put the effort in from set pieces to lose your mark, etc. And I probably didn't do enough of that. But risk... I mean, I know you won't be watching week in, week out Sergio Ramos, but either through pleasure or work, you've seen a lot of Sergio Ramos while he takes cavalier, buccaneer risks and doesn't go forward at set pieces and is forward really whenever he fancies it. Now, I don't think you were that kind of defender. I think your idea about what your job was, also your wish to keep everybody else in the right positions, you're... Your boss, you were very, you were a big talker. Every player I've spoken to said, "Big talker during play, not when the ball goes dead." Therefore, you know, when a defender like Ramos becomes the all-time leading scorer in La Liga, you got to take massive risks, and you got to say, "Like, okay, somebody else will cope." And I don't think that was you. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, Ramos is such an interesting player because, like, he's an unbelievable footballer, great player, technically great. Puts his body on the line. Everything you want in a defender. The only thing I don't want in a defender that he possesses is probably too much emotion sometimes. Um, his red cards tally suggests that and tells you that. But he's, you, you can't deny the geese is just a phenomenal player. And, and yeah, that's the maverick in him. That's the, diff, the big difference between me and him as players. People say ball-playing defender and they put Ramos in that bracket, they put me in that bracket. But the difference is, is that he was very gung-ho and he's got, he's got a maverick element about him where he would absolutely empty space and run out with or without the ball because he senses something somewhere up the pitch that he could make and have an effect on it. And that's a great attribute, but that's not something that... That was knocked out of me, if I'm honest. When I was a kid, that's what I'd done. And, it's, and it looks, I look at it and think, I'd love to have been that guy and carried on doing that, but I, I had managers or systems or teams that didn't require or want that, so... Um, I remember Sachs Ferguson told me a couple of times, don't you dare do that. Or um, Sven Goran Eriksson, I remember my, one of my, third, my first conversation I had with him, we walked onto the training pitch and he said, um, son, if you want to play for me, um, I don't like my centre-backs to run with the ball. And running with the ball was what I loved more than anything. 
Glenn Hoddle was the manager of England. He was going to build the team around me, Paul Scholes, Michael Owen, and one of my main tasks was to bring the ball out of defence, drag players to me, and then play in the, the spaces that they've left. And that was what I was like. I salivated over that stuff. I dreamed that that was my on my estate. That's what me and my friends were about: dribbling, manipulating, dragging, making people off balance, and playing. It was that's what it was all about. And that was probably what, why one of my saddest moments with with football was that Glenn Hoddle didn't get a chance to manage me properly because I think he would have brought the best out of me as a part of being different. And that's why I love Ramos because he's got that element that that. I feel that I would have been able to do given the right manager in charge. I'm here to tell you about another podcast. Yes, we believe in biodiversity. It's from the makers of The Big Interview and it's called Between the Lines, the stories behind great sports writing. Every episode takes a classic sports book or outstanding piece of sports writing and examines how the writer crafted their story. This is a weekly show, and the series so far has featured documentaries on the miracle of Castel di Sangro and Andrea Perlo's autobiography, I Think, Therefore I Play. There's also interviews with writers like Henry Winter, Simon Cooper, Andy Mitten, and David Goldblatt. This is Tim Parks on his classic tome, A Season with Verona. The Bishop of Verona invited the citizens of Verona to burn the book because I'd put all the blasphemies in it. So that was obviously good for sales. You know, I, I was very, very pleased about that. I wish they'd done it. It would have been a happy memory. On the Curva, I would go to games. There would be loads of kids coming up to me saying, you know, I've never read a book before, but I really enjoyed this. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Two things to say, because you, what you were doing saw off a player who spent the rest of his life doing that in Gerard Piquet. And I have a theory that I want to put to you. We're going to come to Rome and Wembley, and I'm going to come back to the theme you've mentioned. But when you go to Manchester United, I mean, we have to, we're going to talk about you winning it. Um, because you've been kind enough to agree, we're going to talk about the two things that still drive you crazy. But 2002-03 is an astonishing European season. I'll tell you two reasons for saying that. One, you get there, and Alec, you help Alex Ferguson stick one on the nose of one of his biggest rivals of his entire life. You play on a United team in your first season at Old Trafford, where on aggregate you pump Juventus. You absolutely destroy them. 2-1 at home, 3-0 in Turin. Gig scored two, Ruud van Nistelrooy in Torino, um, over at Old Trafford you're 2-0 up uh, Wes Brown in the 4th minute Ruud van Nistelrooy in 86 Nedred gets a goal on the whistle um, you play against a team with Chiro Ferrara Pesotto Giuliano Tacchinardi Nedved Camronesi Eka Davids David Trezeguet Salayeta the manager is uh, Lippi there's some slight changes Marco De Vallo comes in for the second leg Conte's back Lillian Turam is back aggregate 5-1 yet they go to the final at Old Trafford. So the two things I want to get from your draw from your memory is that that Juventus experience and the manager who you're getting to know in Alex Ferguson, Juventus was one of the thorns in his side. Did, did that make an impact on you that those victories mattered so much to Fergie and for you as well, stepping up and being big responsibility at United, to do that to Juventus at that stage must have felt extraordinary. Yeah, it was crazy because I remember the games that had gone on beforehand as well. The big rivalry between the teams, Roy Keane's performance in the semi-final, like huge moments and, and just being around the team and the atmosphere, the way it changed Champions League week leading up to them two games was different. I felt it straight away and the manager's intensity changed again. Um, and look again, you look at the, the team sheets, like 
that's, 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 and I was sitting there, I remember thinking, this is why I've come to Man United. This is why I've joined Man United. I'm in the red shirt, I'm playing against the black and white stripes, Del Piero, Trezeguet, Turam, all these guys that I was thinking, wow, that I've been watching on TV. I've, I've done an advert with them for, for Nike years ago where I was a kid and just felt inferior because they were on this stage that I thought I, I was hoping one day I'd get to and I'm here. And then we go to Turin. I don't really remember the game at home. I remember the game away more because I remember Giggsy was under a lot of pressure at that time and the fans were on his case. Juventus was one of the teams that they were talking maybe he'd be going to, but a lot of the fans were saying he's not, Giggsy needs to go, etc. I couldn't believe it, but... And then he goes and puts him in a performance over there. He was mesmeric that day. He was phenomenal the way he performed. He, he, they couldn't handle him. And it was great just to be on, to see the likes of Del Piero, the way that they play. And I felt good in that company. I felt comfortable in that company. I felt I'm meant to be here. I can play at this level now. And there's times in your career, there's games that you play where you go, like the, the 2002 World Cup against Brazil that we got beaten. Big stage. I wasn't ready for that stage. The game passed me by. After that game, self-evaluation, I knew I wasn't ready. I still had a level or two to go to get to the, to be able to compete with the likes of the player on that pitch. The game passed me by. This game against Juventus with all them superstars playing, I'm ready to play this level. Champions League football, I'm, I'm comfortable here. Okay then, this links beautifully because Ronaldo, the Ronaldo, I'm sorry, because the other one's Cristiano, is playing in that Brazil game where you lead and you lose 2-1. And this is just under a year later. The prize for ripping Juve to shreds is Real Madrid. Now, in the first leg, it's 3-1. I took my 72-year-old dad there as a, as a treat. It's 3-1 Real Madrid. I'll read you your team. It's Bartes, Neville, Silvestre, yourself, Brown, Beckham, Butt, Giggs, Roy Keane, Paul Scholes, Rudy Nothing wrong with that 11. Ica Casillas, Michel Salgado, Roberto Carlos, Hierro, Elguera, Zidane, Figo, Flavio Concesao, often forgotten about, Claude Macalelli, Raul and Ronaldo. Now on that night, I don't know what happened. And if you can remember the experience, I'd like to understand because there were two evenly matched teams, but Real Madrid seen, and Real Madrid don't often play in a, in a British way. But they, they seemed, they felt to me to feel that they could go on you to try and pin you. The, the ground was jumping, which the Bernabeu doesn't always do. When they're excited, they're noisy. That was the loudest I'd ever heard it at that ground that night. And I've been there a few times after. I've been there as watching games, doing punditry there. Never have I heard it as loud and as crazy. That was a Galactico team. That was the Galactico team for me, that one there. But because people undervalued the likes of Makalele, he was like ridiculous that day. Um, Figo was unplayable um, Zidane was just majestic Made two Zidane exactly. made two made goals, two goals. Right. But Raul was just like He's the player that, that That just made me In the away game Who would just really He just It was like playing chess He's just like he, he was a move or two ahead Like a chess player Or a snooker player Where he was just He was taking up positions knowing that he weren't even going to receive the ball, but he was asking me as a young, inexperienced defender, are you going to come out and mark me and leave that space for someone like Zidane or Figo to run into, or are you going to stay there? And if you stay there, I'll get the ball to feet and then I'll pass and and we'll we'll, we'll outnumber you in midfield then. What are you going to do? So it was really just... it, It would... The, the game there was definitely the, probably one of the most demanding mentally at that stage of my career. And the fact that they were Galactico's superstars and you're thinking, wow, this is like, well, this is different, another level, another league up from what I've been used to. Um, but the game at Old Trafford, that's remember for Ronaldo's hat-trick, which was a, 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 a ridiculous feat from a player of such standing in the game. But I still look at that game with like... A, I feel that, you know, as a, as a defender, if I, I make a mistake, you hope, and in the great teams, that your mate will get you out of, out of it. Your centre-back partner or your goalkeeper will just make a save. Or, but that game was just, it just didn't happen. We, you, you just got punished each and every time. Where, and the first goal that Ronaldo scored in that game, funny enough, I actually defended that well. And I'll stand by that even now. I pushed him wide. Um, I was over there. And he scores near post. 
and I'm, I'm like, wow, he should. I look back and think, he, Fa- Fabian, he shouldn't. Fabian, score. yeah, Fabian. And I'm sitting there going, Fabian, he shouldn't score there. I'm, I'm, I'm protecting the far post. When I look at it, and I'm asking here, not stating, because one of us is world class and the other one watches football. You defended him to such an extent that Bartes underestimated Ronaldo. His mistake comes from Rio's got that sorted. I, I don't have to be doing what I would do. If you'd given him another metre, even half a metre, Bartes is probably like, I have to watch out. I think he's, I say God to sleep, he's dropped a millimetre of concentration because he's got, Rio's got this. And, and you had. And that's where he's dozed off, I feel. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the element of surprise, maybe, I don't, I don't know. But I've never spoke to Fabian about it, actually. And, this, and then the third goal, I think he shouldn't score, really. It's, it's, the keeper should save it. But that doesn't, that doesn't diminish what Ronaldo was. He was like... And I look at that game and think, wow, imagine if he hadn't had the injuries, what this guy would have been doing. Like He was just like, unplayable, what a player. But that, that, that Madrid team was... They were a great team. That that home game, the Valencia, the, the three best teams I've played against, the Valencia team in the semi-final, the Real Madrid team at the Bernabeu, the Galactico team that beat us, um, and obviously the Barca team that we'll talk about later. They're the three best teams that I've played against in my whole career. What When you come out of that season, do you feel, with the World Cup experience, with Juve under your belt, with Raul and Ronaldo under your belt for good or bad do you feel that you're now getting close to being a Champions League winning defender do you feel now that that Europe holds fewer fears and, and there's a sense that something's coming or, or not so much no not no, not really I'm, I'm, I'm feeling that we're we are there or thereabouts but there's still a few teams that are probably at the same level if not better than us and you've got to remember around that period Roy Keane starts to leave Beck starts to leave um the team starts transitioning then and changing. Um, and we have a period of kind of um, a rebuild, really. So Alex Ferguson rebuilding another team. Um, and I remember vividly at that point him saying to me, Rio, just be patient, be patient. I'll get it right and just stick with me. I know what I'm doing. Um, I'm going to build the team around the likes of yourself, Rude, etc. So... But just be just just be patient. We're going to get it right. And then he went and he was there was big rumours about us buying Ronaldinho at the time. And I remember it didn't happen, and we was all deflated and like wow, because you, you, like the players, we're like the fans. We're sitting there reading the news, listening to it all come in, and we're thinking wow. And all of a sudden, Ronaldinho. And every day we're going out training. Gaffer, we getting him? Are we getting him? Are we getting him? Or what? What have you spoke to him? What's going on? He's got no answers, no answers. And then one day he said, listen, it's not going to happen. And it was just like. Wow, that would maybe our chance to, to 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 get us closer beyond all these other great sides. A genuine superstar. It didn't happen, but luckily then we fall on Cristiano Ronaldo at that time. By the end of that pre-season, and so we signed him, and then obviously the rest is history. I don't understand, and and it's me not keeping up. By because I'm about to give you praises for your predictions. In, in 2000, when you play Milan in 2007, the year they go on and win it, you don't play in the home leg, which is 3-2 United against Milan, and then you're on the bench and you don't come on in Milan. Because we were going for the league. We were going for the league and I'd, I'd had an injury. So I was injured for the first leg, 100%, and in the second leg, I, was, I, I, I said I could have played, but the manager said we had a big game the following uh, at the weekend. I don't know who it was against. Um, and we were still like... I think it might have been neck and neck with Chelsea or Arsenal at the time um, to win the league. So the manager wouldn't risk me. I said I was fine to play, but he said, no, 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 no. we need to win the game at the weekend as well. So he felt that, I don't know, maybe he felt that the game against Milan was one step too far anyway. I'm not sure. Well, this is what I like, because after you're knocked out by Milan, I'm going to throw your own words back at you in a positive way. This is fantastic. Our acquisitions have been brilliant. Owen Hargreaves... If we did somebody like him in Milan, it could have been a different result. And you said, I can't wait to see him and Carrick and Scolzi together and play behind them. So what this is going to lead to is is the, the, the first Champions League final of your career. But it's, it's also an, an excuse to talk about... We had Michael Carrick on the big interview. And when he started talking about Moscow, he got lost in, in the moment. He was kind of mentally... He was actually in the rain in Moscow and and I, I kind of lost him his voice was there but his mind was somebody somewhere else 
And he also talked about how privileged he's felt about playing in front of you for West Ham, um, Manchester United and England. And what he said was that it was a luxury because of your footballing skills, but also because you were an orchestra director. He was one of those who've talked about the amount of good information you gave to everybody around you. Um, Am I right in putting that quite high in the list of skills that you've got that perhaps differentiate you from other talented central defenders because that's what makes a team it's not just you're able to cope with your own job get your own job right pre-visualise win tackles read games shunt attackers where they don't want to go but also play a role in keeping people around you informed certainly that was Michael's point of view yeah 100% and, and people always talk about this are leaders born or are they made I wasn't a natural talker as a kid one of the things that West Ham, Tony Carr, Frank Lampard, Harry that used to say to me, Rio, you've played in silence. You've got to talk. You've got to talk. And I used to think, like, what is that? And it wasn't until I actually understood other people's roles completely within my team that then, and, and my own role, what I was meant to do, what I was here for, what I was really good at. Once I understood that, especially my own role, I could then be, breathe easier and talk to other people. And I, I could... I was so fixated on my own game that I couldn't talk to anybody else and fixated on getting my own stuff right that I couldn't speak to no one else. And then all of a sudden, it just clicked at the World Cup in 2002. I don't know what it was. I just became an absolute talker. And communicating, yeah, I think oh, the, the, the leader of an orchestrator is probably the best way to put it, Like as you just said. I would scream at people. Sometimes a look is even more powerful than an actual word or the volume someone's I'm, I'm shouting for instance I'm shouting to Michael Carrick right go right Once, give me one step to your right two steps to your right and he doesn't and the ball gets played in to where I was saying him to cover to, to, to stop the ball and the person turns and gets a shot off on goal or something like that and he, 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 he's only got to look at me and see my look to know that that ain't happening again don't do that again just when I shout you right go right if the ball goes left that's my fault. But as long as you're doing as I say, I'll take the responsibility. So in the change room after, if the manager shouts at somebody because I've, my information has made them step a certain way and he's not happy with it, I'd always put my hand up and say, Gaffer, listen, I shouted him right. It's me. Don't worry. It's me. I'd always take that responsibility. So I believe that as, as young players now in the game, I think that that's probably an element that's not coached enough and coaxed into people is the, the, the art of communication. Because I always just used to think to myself, if I communicate to Michael, to Scolzi, to Gary Neville, whoever it is, Nemanja Vidic, if I'm talking to them more often than not and getting them into better positions, that means I've got a better chance of winning. We've got a better chance of looking better as players, as individuals and a collective. And that's all I was concerned with. So you hear about great captains... And you made a really good point there. That there's a lot of great captains that we can look at down the list of years in the Premier League, especially, <clears throat> who people go, oh, he was a great captain, or he's a great captain. And you think to yourself back in the games, I never ever heard any of them speak once in a game, really. You might hear them when the ball goes dead and the ball goes out and there's a little rallying call or whatever that is. But that's very different leadership to communicating, orchestrating and getting people in the right positions throughout a game throughout the 90 minutes and it's, but I'm not saying that's any less of a captain it's just different types of captains that are out there I'm not putting words in your mouth but my belief is that what your sh- leadership of the time, type you've separated out is very British it's built on the army it's built on the public schools it's a rallying cry come on guys you're giving somebody a, a verbal bullying so that they give you a reaction the, the type of leadership we're talking about you and I that you had you're not unique but it separates you is about football intelligence it's about in-game decision it's about shepherding people so that also you said look better but if say it's Cara or, or say it's your fullback or Vida or it, it doesn't really matter who, Fletch if they've heard you and you've got a vision that they don't have because somebody's coming at that peripherally or you can see a run coming from deep that they're concentrating on somebody else. If they do that, percentage-wise, they follow your instruction, percentage-wise, you're already clear about, well, if he does that and the guy gets past him, I know where it's going to happen. You're reducing the area of operations where you've got to then put yourself into because you've <coughs> you've told them... A great way to put it, sorry to cut you, is that... Like, 
you speak to any player now, whether they understand their game or not, but if you put it in this kind of way, that if you've got a player alongside you in your team who isn't receptive to the information that you're giving them, they're an absolute hindrance. They're a nightmare to play with. People that listen to what you're saying and move off, move off every word that you say make it so much easier to play with. For instance, Rafael De Silva, the right-back, when he came in, a young kid, you got, I had to feel like I have him on a remote control because he was an aggressive, like pumped-up little rocket waiting, just wanted to get out there and get against people. Whereas I wanted him to sometimes hold his position, sometimes go and talk to him through that. But he was very much uh, someone who just listened, real, tell me what to do, I'll do whatever you say. Which was great for me, especially as I'm getting older as well and I need maybe a bit more cover or whatever. But also, not to the detriment of the team, I want him to be as good as he can be. But that's why you go back to that quote I said about, I can't wait to see Scolzi, Carrick and Owen Hargreaves play together because I knew the German influence, the discipline, the receptive to information that Owen had and how good he was. He is such an underrated player in terms of what he had. If he didn't have injuries, this guy was like, he was the, the Makaleli of our time, even with, with, I don't know, maybe a bit more, to, it's probably going a bit far, but he was on that level. Like He, would, he could shut someone down without a, a shadow of a doubt. He was the quickest at the club when he signed. The quickest player at the club. We'd done all the tests. He, he was the top of all the charts in terms of the, the short, sharp, 5, 10, 15-yard runs. He was aggressive, but tactically, he was impeccable. Um, and when I shouted up, back, left, right, whatever, he, it was like straight away, like, like almost army, army stuff. Like, and Michael Carrick was exactly the same because they knew it was just for the benefit of the team while I was doing it. It wasn't a selfish shout or oh, cover me cover me it was that's what's going to be best for our team I'm stopping the ball going into a certain area so when people say Michael Carrick didn't make tackles he didn't need to half the time one of it was his reading of the game was so good but also I'll be communicating behind him to make him just take two steps to the right that stops the ball going into an area that he's even got to make a tackle about so and Scolzi as well Scolzi was like he, yes, he made some crazy tackles every now and again, but more often than not, Scolzi just got in the right position and intercepted play because he's now, he's smell of the game, but then you need communication in there somewhere. What we've talked about by April 2008 gives you your first competitive shot against Barcelona. You and your team. Now, Barcelona, I'm not sure, and we're going to talk about Manchester United's forward planning, forward scouting this year a little bit more in a year's time but by 2008 they're flat they're not training very well Ronaldinho it's just a sad fact is, is out living a, a really heavy nightlife and they're a, they're a slower team but although you don't find them indigestible across two legs obviously if Cristiano scores the penalty at Camp Nou it's a nil-nil first leg of the semi-final um, patently either side could have got a 1-0 win there it's very very tight but you set me up nicely because it's Paul that, it's Paul that scores the 1-0 goal. It's an extraordinary goal at Old Trafford. It's Paul who later confessed that he gave away a penalty against Messi at Old Trafford that the referee didn't spot. If I can take you to that semi-final and your impressions of that team and what it was like playing against Eto and Messi, and even though the score over the two legs is only 1-0... To what degree did you feel that you were superior to them? Because having watched them for several seasons and having then lived in Barcelona for several years, I knew that it was heavy odds against them. I just wonder how clear you were over two legs that in football terms, in team terms and physically, you, you were better than them. Yeah, this, this was Barcelona before the, the, the extreme tick-attack of football came in. Um, and they relied more on individual brilliance than, than a, a structure of a team. And so, that, for me, that's always easier to defend against. Um, and that's proven in the cases of my, my times against Barcelona. So, they had a great team. They're great individuals. Eto was, a, was, was someone who could score goals at every level, at uh, the highest level. He was uh, really, really quick. Messi was just obviously coming to the fore as a, as a, as a world beater as well. And you just thought they didn't. They just probably didn't have that that backup of the tactical element, but also the backup of of, of the the huge talent that came after that. Um, and 
I've got to be honest, that's probably one of our best defensive dis- displays mm-hmm. as a team that night as well. We were we done what was a blueprint of Man United around that time is that we we didn't sit deep because we were quick enough at the back to cover balls over the top, but we we were very compact. And once we won the won the ball, the transition was very quick. We could get the ball from back to front really quick with one or two free passes, and we'd have the opportunities to go. And it was proved that new, the new uh, the new camp. Um, Cristiano misses a one-on-one, I think, as well in that game. He has a great chance that he should score. Um, and we probably see that game out 2-0. Two, two but they, they, it was a testing game. And then obviously the game at Old Trafford, it could have gone either way. It was a great, a great goal from Scolzi. And we had to defend resolutely that night. And we get a bit of luck here and there, which you need on the route to win in any competition. But it, like, I, I've never thought about that, really. You look at the the how both squads then evolved from that point is very different. I want to go to yours, though. Take us behind the scenes. My impression is that Kirosh, who's going to leave, is a very important factor then. And he's really good in his preparation for the semi-final for Europe, but for Barcelona in particular. And he's a better complement. I mean, I'm giving away what I'm going to argue. No harm to Rennie Mullenstein as an individual, but Kirosh is a better complement to Sir Alex. Than, than you're going to find later. And I think he plays a role in your preparation for that for that semi-final and for the final, right? Yeah, 100%. I, th- I think, listen, Sarris Ferguson's got a maverick element about him. He's got a, he take a, he'll take a risk here and there. Um, Carlos Queiroz is very conservative in his, in, in pragmatic in his approach to football. He's got certain ideals that he lives and dies by. Transition, being quick in transition, being compact, um, resolute, um, not taking too many risks. So that's a great combination aligned to someone like Sir Alex, like I said, is a bit of a, a maverick who will take risks. Um, and he was great in that respect. And I remember he had cones the day before the game that he was just throwing out as, as to where we need to be positioned. It was all in a circle and he was just, this is the way. If Santo moves here, we move there. It was just such a, a tactical, um, compact way of looking at things, but with a, a sharpness of when we win the ball to be able to hurt them as well. Um, and he was great and, I, and yeah I mean if we did have Carlos Quiros going into the games against Barcelona in like years down the line the result maybe would have worked, it could have worked out differently and that's hypothetical to say that but there would definitely would have been an element of well we can't full on try and high press this team because they have got dangers Thank you for listening to The Big Interview. It's produced by me, which sounds egotistical, but it's also true, Graham Hunter, and Backpage. Our music is by Beer Jacket, who else? Editing by Charlie McGarry. Thank you to our hosts at Acast and our loyal sponsors at Bet365. We're also supported by our socios. Find out how to become a socio, how to support us at patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter. Here endeth the lesson. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.